Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to the court of the great Khan, Mongol king and emperor of China. Allow me to present myself. I am Marco Polo. Like the game in the swimming pool? Yeah, I get that a lot. What brings you to the court of Khan? I am a merchant. I have traveled here all the way from a city in Italy called Venus. You mean Venice? Yeah, that's possible. I'm really bad with pronunciation. My family are merchants. I am seeking spices. I'm sorry. They hit that every time somebody says that word. What word? Spice? Yes. Perhaps you could tell me which types of that commodity you seek to purchase. Sure. My mother gave me a list. Let's see. We want to buy a lot of star anus. I believe that's pronounced anise. Oh, wow. That is so embarrassing. Although I did have a roommate who fit that description. I feel you. What else is on the list? Fennel seed? We totally have that. Okay, duck sauce? Not technically a spice. Damn it! Ginger? So many ways I could answer that. How about cinnamon? Really, for that I would recommend India. If I'm honest, India beats us all the hell with spices. I have to talk to somebody about getting them not to do that. Where is this India? Okay, when you leave here, you're going to take a right, you head due south past Hangzhou, then you'll see signs that say next two exits for India, don't take them. Take a right at the Malay Peninsula, and there's India. You can't miss it. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, today we're doing a whole show about... Don't say it. The S-word. And now he always says a little song, a little dance, a little nutmeg in your pants. Colin McEnroe. Uh, that's my motto. Uh, all right, we are talking about spice today. We're going to talk about it uh, several different ways. We are going to talk about the history of the sp- of spice, the way an almost feverish desire uh, for spice. It, it was not the only factor, but it was a major factor in opening up trade routes and, and, and in what became kind of global trade and imperialism and colonization and uh, you know, maybe some things that were not that great. Uh, and we're also going to talk about the contemporary role of spice because, in fact, our in a way, I think it can be argued and probably will be argued um, that our relationship with spice hasn't changed that much, that it's so Proustian and so primal uh, that, that it has the ability to excite in us um, uh, things that we, you, you couldn't excite uh, on such a short-term basis any, any other way. So I don't know. That sounded incoherent, what I just said. But anyway, uh, the, fortunately, the guests are going to be much more coherent. That's sort of the format of our show. Uh, joining us from New York, Lior Lev Sirkars uh, is the chef, a spice blender, and owner of La Boite, a biscuit and spice shop in New York City. He's also a spice therapist. And yes, we will explain to you spice therapy. Uh, also joining us uh, is Paul Friedman. Uh, Paul Friedman 
is a professor of history at Yale University and the author of Out of the East, Spices and the Medieval Imagination, and 10 Restaurants That Changed America, which is scheduled for publication uh, next year in 2016. Uh, later in the show, we're going to talk about our, our native spice. It's not really a native spice, but the spice that, to which we have some kind of nominal connection, uh, and that is nutmeg. Deborah Blum is a Pulitzer Prize-winning science journalist who writes the Elemental Blog for Wired, her New York Times blog, Poison Pen. She's the author of several books, including The Poisoner's Handbook. Uh, and she's actually working on another book on poisonous food. Uh, Lior will also help us with uh, with nutmeg when we get to that as well. Uh, Paul Friedman, I'm going to start with you, uh, and, and we'll be blending Lior uh, like a spice uh, into this conversation as we go along. Uh, but uh, Paul Friedman, I just want to begin by having you sort of sketch out for us. I mean, one hears, one is taught from the time one is in elementary school that the spice trade really was this driver for international commerce starting in the early Middle Ages, maybe maybe even sooner, uh, that, that Marco Polo and, and the East India Company, that all this was uh, not exclusively about spice, but heavily about spice. So how much of that is uh, a lie my history teacher taught me, and how much of that is, in fact, reality? Oh, I'd say almost entirely reality. The European hunger for spices is par- partly because European food in the Middle Ages was very spicy, much more so than it is now. Uh, There's simply a question of taste. But also, spices were luxury products, and they carried an image of prestige and health, so that they were, in a way, drugs, uh, or perceived as such. They they were healthful ingredients, and uh, because of their wonderful aroma, uh, they were regarded as um, almost magical in their properties, so somewhat like aromatherapy is now. And because they were very expensive and because they came from far away, there was this desire to see if some direct route to find them and either buy them cheaply or plunder them could be found. And and I would imagine also one of the nice things about spices is that compared to a lot of other things that you could get from an exotic location, which you reached by an arduous journey and faced an arduous journey back, frequently overland in the early days, was that they were very small. In other words, you could bring quite a bit of spice back on a donkey or whatever it was that you were using as opposed to anything else, that, that, that a pinch of it uh, would deliver to somebody living in Genoa or, or wherever uh, quite a jolt that, 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 that summed up really in kind of a Proustian way some locale that the average person was never going to visit. Absolutely. And as uh, you'll be talking about nutmeg later, uh, nutmeg is something that um, has uh, a long life. So that it's not just that they were lightweight, but that these spices uh, preserved their aromatic properties. So, you know, a nutmeg, even if it's a year or two old, if you start grating it, it will release its aroma. So these things took a year or so to get from India or Indonesia to Europe, uh, but they uh, retained this magical aroma. Um, let me weave uh, Lior Lev-Sarkars into this conversation. Um, Lior, you just heard Paul, who's a historian, talk about the, the notion of spice having a spiritual dimension, uh, but being a historian, he spoke in the past tense. Um, I'm assuming that for you and for your customers, sp- spices still do have something uh, of a spiritual dimension. Maybe that isn't the word that you would use, but tell me the word that you would use. Well, I'd start by saying that what Paul said in um, 
is is absolutely truth and i think it's it's still true today you know spices for the most part even today come from far away countries so they still uh retain that magical aspect about them you know uh we don't um travel every day to a far away destiny yet in many ways within your kitchen wherever you are in the united states you can in many ways travel to these exotic places just by grating some nutmeg or adding some of these exotic spices so definitely still have a lot of exotic or mysterious value to them uh, especially when we are trying to explore with these uh, foreign cuisines and cultures so um Paul uh, Friedman, um, tell us about the the people. I assume these were mainly men, or maybe exclusively men, who who went, say, in the Middle Ages, looking for these spices. First of all, I assume this was an extraordinarily risky business. That uh, this was uh, a, um, a, a type of trade that you might make a lot of money from, but you also might die uh, in the process. Uh, it's definitely risky uh, to try to go to India, for example. And even when the route was well known, when the Portuguese had forged a route, the chances of surviving the trip were only maybe two and three. So you had to be going for a huge profit. But before that, before the Portuguese reached India in 1498, um, the trade was in the hands of merchants, but the safest way was to go to Muslim countries in the eastern Mediterranean. So for centuries... People in Western Europe, in places like Venice or Barcelona, bought spices in Alexandria, Beirut, Damascus. The price was high. They knew that you know there was uh, uh, at least a theoretical possibility of getting them more directly from the supplier. But from their point of view, they just passed the mark up on to the consumer. So the people who were really desperate to find spices are not so much the Venetians or the Genoese. But people like the Spanish and the Portuguese, and and um, is it the is it about the money? In other words, uh, this is obviously it's a luxury item. Uh, apparently, there's a, a a wealthy enough class that has a place that they can put their money. They can put their money in, into this. They can spend it uh, on spices. Is that what drives the actual procurer of these spices, or is it some other kind of panache? It's a panache that has to do with a combination of food drugs, uh, prestige, conspicuous consumption, as we call it now, and uh, uh, sort of beauty, which includes perfume, aroma, uh, and even the sacred. It is an upper-class taste, but like a lot of upper-class tastes, you didn't have to be in the absolute 1% top uh, of the social spectrum uh, to enjoy it. So we know that people all over uh, Europe ate pepper, uh, and so the rich decided that pepper wasn't so prestigious, and uh, nutmeg, which was rarer, became more important as a display of wealth, along with cloves and uh, other things that were uh, the top of the spice hierarchy. Um, Lior, I, I sense in, in what Paul Friedman is saying and, and uh, what you've said as well, that it's not far-fetched to say that spice spices are one of the earliest stirrings and impulses towards globalism and internationalism. In other words, if people in Spain are eating the same flavors as people in China, if people uh, in, in Italy are eating flavors that, that come from, from India, that, you know, we kind of have the beginnings of a global exchange. Does that make any sense? 
It absolutely does. I think it's, you know, these great explorers that went to seek for these prestigious spices brought them back home to Venice or to Spain or to Europe with them and and started using them, whether it's for, for medicinal purposes or, or food, which is more relevant to what um, I deal with and do today. And it, it's it's not a mystery that you would find a lot of similarities between dishes in countries that are not necessarily connected via land even uh, and dishes. So one might call them in a certain name, the other would call them in a different name. Uh, but there are definitely a lot of similarities. Also knowing that these merchants did not just go uh, to these countries, just grab a bag and ran back. Um, they had to spend quite a while there, and Paul uh, might elaborate on that, and, and became very familiar with the customs and, and the culinary uh, traditions of that country in order to become friendly and, and, and enforce these relationships. And, and people like Marco Polo or, or other who spent quite a while there uh, came back home and brought these traditions with them. So I think that if you find in Italy and Spain uh, dishes that are, you know, inspired by the Far East, that it's it's not uh, a wonder that they are, you know. Yeah, he makes a great point, Paul Friedman. I mean, we know that Marco Polo was... He was almost sort of a functionary within the Khan government for a while. Uh, I mean, it wasn't you just a matter of just grabbing the turmeric and the cardamom and cardamom and loading up your donkeys or your boats and, and getting the hell out of there, right? I mean, it, the spice traders were they were there a long time. That's right, and then uh, particularly once the uh, traders uh, reached India, they also decided not only to stay for a long time, but to see if they could take over parts of it. So the Portuguese uh, uh, took over parts of the western spice coast of India, uh, Goa being the part that they kept the longest into the uh, well into the 20th century. And, and so, you know, uh, Paul, um, you know, you've used the word drug a couple of times. And when we say drug, and one senses that when these spices are being uh, valued not simply as ways to make your food taste better or to make your uh, your you know your dinner party in Sevilla a little bit more fancy and exotic um, that it was these spices were valued in a different way. I don't know when you say drug whether you mean medicinal or or hallucinogenic or both. Um, but what did what attributes were projected onto these spices? Uh, right. The uh, attribute that they didn't have is, uh, you know, an addictive drug. They're not addictive. They don't really produce hallucinations. They don't even really wake you up or anything. And that's one reason why they were superseded by things like coffee, chocolate, and tea beginning in the 17th century, because those do have a kind of um, uh, kick or... Um, slightly addictive effect. But what spices as drugs means is that they were thought to cure diseases and to prevent diseases. And probably the preventive part is as important as the notion that spices can, you know, cure um, uh, stomach distress, strangely enough, I guess, to us, uh, or um, uh, be good for your complexion or uh, uh, treat uh, uh, smallpox or something. The idea of prevention is one of balance. A lot of foods are cold and wet. Spices tend to be hot and dry. Therefore, if you're going to eat cold and wet food, um, uh, the spices are supposed to balance it out, supposed to create a kind of equilibrium because disease was thought to result from an imbalance of uh, bodily fluids called humor. 
balance. And I would imagine also there's just sort of the sense of arcana, too, the sense that, I mean, we, we have it still, but, but it must have been very powerful at that time, that somewhere else besides here, there are people who know things that we don't, things that are more or less uh, secrets to us anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. The idea, you know, like acai berries or uh, some new thing comes on the market and people think, oh, the, the natives of the place where this comes from, you know, live to be 100 all the time or... Uh, never suffer from diabetes or are are totally healthy. Sometimes that's chronological, like the paleo diet. Uh, Sometimes it's, uh, you know, uh, based on a place, like the places where yogurt comes from. But this idea that people far away have a better diet than we do is hardwired into modern consciousness. And and Lior, I would imagine that's very much uh, something that you experience in your business, too, that that suddenly there'll be a mania for this or that spice. You know, I have to have this, either because it's the most fashionable one or even because I I would imagine even still there are people who would attribute health benefits to a certain spice. Yeah, so absolutely. So funny enough, you know, we we talk about, you know, a few hundred years ago, we are seeing the same things happening again. You know, we took a little break for a couple of hundred years, maybe. With, uh, but we're going back to the source and trying to understand why in countries where there's large consumption of spices, people maybe live better, healthier, longer. Uh, diseases are in smaller numbers, and we all want to live better. And uh, we're all going back and looking at what could be done. So we definitely see a lot of demand in the last few years for healthier spices, uh, for things that could substitute uh, sodium and sugar. Uh, so really uh, a big, big and growing demand. And people um, come and ask if we are familiar with these new spices. And, you know, it's it's a bit funny to me. They're not new. You know, we, we've known about them all the time. We just chose to set them aside uh, in lieu of some uh, modern medicine that's uh, going back to more traditional medicine in many ways. Um, Paul, I, I, I would imagine that you can echo some of what uh, Lior just said, particularly in the sense that um, American cuisine for probably its first few hundred years may not have been that focused on spice. I, I, that's, that's my overall sense of what people think American food is, and that, that over the last 20 to 30 years, we've become more internationalized and a lot more interested in spice. I think it probably began uh, in colonial times where spices had a tremendous prestige. And if you think of Thanksgiving food, uh, a lot of that food uh, has, uh, has spices associated with it. Um, you know, the sweet potatoes or the pumpkin pie or things like that. But definitely in the last, uh, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, American food uh, relied on other effects for flavor. And so the food that I grew up with in the 1950s and 60s was pretty bland. But what's happened uh, since the 80s is not only has there been a lot more spice in American food because of things like um, uh, new immigrant groups, new restaurant opportunities, but also I think Americans' tastes have just changed. If If you look at things that don't have a particular ethnic identity like buffalo chicken wings or blackened redfish, these are really popular items, and uh, hot sauce and hot spices and contests involving chili peppers are very big, and I think that's attributable uh, to something that just has to do with a, uh, a change in taste apart from immigration or ethnic influences. 
Um, Lior, uh, I'm wondering, I mean, I was on the Le Boite website uh, looking at some of the blends that you have, and they look terrific. And they're also, you know, within my price range, too. I'm going to start ordering from you instead of going to Penzi's. Um, but I would imagine that there are still, are, are there still, I mean, I, I suppose saffron is the mo- most expensive spice that the average person is going to buy. They're, you know, I mean, it, it's still pretty costly to buy just a few threads of saffron. Are there particular spices that, that are, are still incredibly rare? I mean, obviously, rarity was one of the things that drove the explorers and, and traders that, that Paul writes about. Um, are there still, you know, sort of pearls of great price within the spice world? Absolutely. I mean, saffron still remains very expensive, if not the most expensive, just because it is important to understand that even though we are in 2015 and we think we've gone a long way, we haven't gone that far in terms of growing spices. It remains a very labor-intense agriculture uh, grown by thousands of small farmers who, I'll give you an example, if I buy 100 pounds of a very particular pepper from a farmer in Cambodia, which that's all he grows in one year, I can grind it within a day, you know. So uh, he spends a year growing just 100 pounds, and we can, in, in one day, pretty much ground him. So spices still remain hard to grow. There's a lot of hand labor. Uh, saffron remains very expensive. Um, they're obviously not as expensive as the times of, of Marco Polo or, or the big courts in Venice and in Europe, thankfully. But to go to the more economic side of things, uh, spices have increased nearly 40% in the last year. So if you want to invest in something these days, uh, <laughs> you might want to look at uh, spices the same way that you look at real estate or others. So they do gain back uh, a little bit of their value from an economic standpoint of view, absolutely. And hopefully some of it will one day land in the United States and we can see more uh, agriculture relevant to spices here. Um, let's hope they don't get too uh, valuable. Paul Friedman, my father, used to say to me that all wars were fought over real estate or religion. Uh, and I guess maybe this falls into the real estate case. But there were wars fought over access to these spice routes, right? Uh, definitely. And um, uh, valuations were made of things like a strategic position versus products like spices. The most famous example is that the, the British and the Dutch uh, traded Manhattan Island, which the Dutch gave to the British, uh, for uh, a nutmeg island in uh, what's now Indonesia, which the um, uh, British gave to the Dutch. And at that time, in the late 17th century, uh, their value seemed to be equivalent. Paul Friedman, uh, we know that you have to go. Uh, we're going to say thank you and goodbye. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we'll have more of Lior. Uh, more, we'll explain to you spice therapy. We'll ex- explain to you more about spice blending. Parsley, oregano, arrowroot. I want to tell everyone about my spices. Parsley, oregano, arrowroot, dillweed. What are your favorite spices? I like all the chili stuff. Turkey chili. I like curry, too. Garlic and lemon herb. How do you use them? As liberally as I can when I'm grilling. Here's the sugar. Sugar. (laughs) Salt is a spice. I probably use too much salt. I love cinnamon and vanilla in everything. Baked goods, coffee, ice cream. Basil. And pasta. It's one of those herbs that are versatile. Is cinnamon a spice? I like cinnamon. How do you use it? In drinks, I guess, like tea, coffee, sweet potatoes. Put cinnamon on sweet potatoes. It's good. I'm going to have to try that. It's <laughs> awesome. 
And those are voices from the mean streets uh, of Connecticut gathered by our interns, Katie McAuliffe and Katie Pikus. Uh, to make it more difficult, they were only allowed to ask questions of people named Katie. They even had to find men named Katie. Uh, so we're talking about spices today, about spice. Uh, Lior Lev Sarkars is with us. He's the chef, spice blender, and owner of La Boite, a biscuit and spice shop in New York City. He's also a spice therapist. We're going we're gonna to get to the spice therapy thing in just a second, uh, Lior. But one thing we really haven't said, and I'm sure this is um, a subject dear to your heart, that, that all spices are not created equal. In other words, if I buy turmeric, uh, and I don't know too much about uh, who uh, I'm getting it from, or it's like drugs, I guess. I mean, you should really sort of know, right? And and I, I don't know what influences that, whether it's terroir or quality control or... But but anyway, I would imagine not all bottles and bags of the same particular spice are created equal. No, absolutely. I mean, it's what makes my uh, job very interesting and very difficult at the same time is to get to the best source possible. Uh, unfortunately, there's really no guides in school on where and how to do it. You know, we are all uh, easy, uh, easily uh, able to evaluate good meat or good vegetables because these things that we're familiar with. When I started uh, many years ago, I had to train myself. And what I do is just go to the source. I, I kind of realize that if I want to buy and get the best product, I need to go to the countries who actually grow it and also find out that if they grow it, they probably use it and learn from them not only how they grow it, but how they cook with it, which was a great uh, help for me. Um, and, and the process continues, and, and I work with farmers directly uh, in helping them grow better product, you know, instead of just abandoning the subject, maybe encouraging them to do better uh, techniques and, and get a better product. I sometimes pay the price, as an example, as a farmer in, in Colombia who I... Uh, kind of taught along the way, and today his cardamom is, is outstanding and so expensive that I have to put myself on a wait list in order to get some of that cardamom that I helped uh, grow. I, I should have said that we're live here in the afternoon. If you did have a spice question, this would be the person to ask it of. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Lior, you heard those voices from the street. Um, being typical Americans, they tended to talk about cinnamon and salt. <laughs> and and uh, yeah. hardly anybody <laughs> said fenugreek. Um, and, yeah. and is that a source? I don't know. Frustration is maybe the wrong word. But uh, in other words, when Americans, when you ask Americans about spices, they don't don't mention fenugreek. They don't mention cardamom, typically anyway, that, that our understanding of what the spice palette is, uh, is, is pretty limited. It, it is, yes. It, it's much better than uh, what it was when I arrived here 12 years ago. Uh, and thankfully to, to shows like yours and, and magazines and TV and just the fact that people travel a lot more. Mm -hmm. uh, we Paul mentioned it very quickly when he said earlier, I think that something very interesting happened and in the, the restaurant industry is that a young generation of chefs that were for many years hiding their um, background or their mother's cooking, as I call it, or their grandmother's cooking, all of a sudden woke up and said, maybe I can make it really up to date and, and start featuring this ethnic cuisine. And and the, the response from people all over the U.S. is just overwhelmingly nice and great. And people all of a sudden start talking about fenugreek and turmeric and galangal and all of these uh, fancy words that uh, most people didn't know of. And um, it still remains a bit limited. It's mainly around the holiday season where everybody opens up their jars of nutmeg and, and cinnamon and starts seasoning pies and sweet potatoes. 
but uh, we are seeing more and more happening uh, in the mainstream, and, and you can find more ingredients even at your local grocery store. Um, you know, you raise an interesting point, which is that when people do that, I mean, I've always been told that one should r- rotate out your older spices, right? I mean, people tend to keep to buy a little jar of something. Uh, and as you say, they use it on special occasions. They don't season with it all the time. But if you're turning to something once a year or once every six months, uh, you're pr- it's probably going to go bad or go stale or lose its, its punch uh, long before you run out of it. Absolutely, and I think the good news is that spices don't go bad in a way that you'll get sick. Right. Uh, So they're safe for quite a long time. It's also a very bad news because people tend to hold on to them forever. Uh, I think the the key is to buy what you consume, and if you're only using spices during the holidays, so buy them right before the holidays and buy very small quantities. We do encourage people to open up their, uh, you know, pantry and, and kitchen cabinets more often on a daily basis even and, and start playing around with food that they're familiar with and adding um, spices to them and, and it's just fantastic to see and, and all of a sudden it takes you from a two, um, two-dimensional two cooking to a three-dimensional cooking and who doesn't like food that tastes good, at least I do. Um, I, I'm a fairly, I do a lot of cooking, but I, when it comes to spices, I'm somewhat of a lazy chef. And so I'm very beckoned by and tempted by what you do, which is you blend the spices for me. Um, so I, I, rather than hunting through my spice cabinet for three or four different things that I might find in a recipe or have some idea of, I'd much rather have the, the, the kind of thing that, that you make. But how do you arrive at these blends? How do you decide how, how who, who decides what proportions and in what combinations constitute a really effective spice blend? So I have the luxury of deciding what I want, you know, and, and creating the blend that I want to do. The, what inspired me is actually my mother, who is, is a decent cook, but she always had these jars that says fish rub and meat seasoning and chicken mm. and will never allow me to use them for something else. And when I decided to make blends, my goal was to make a blend that will allow uh, anybody to do whatever they want to do with it. Um, so I make blends. There's always a concept behind it. It might be a person or a place that I visited or a challenge from one of the chef clients that we work with. But I always make it in a way that uh, you, for instance, could make uh, a chocolate chip cookie. I make might make uh, pork ribs with it and, and a fourth or third person we make a cocktail or a soup with it. And, and it does happen in reality. And instead of you having 10 jars of single spices in your kitchen cabinet, you might end up with only one but you could use it every day from breakfast to dinner in as many possible ways. Um, we're getting a tweet from uh, some, somebody named Lucy. I assume that's Lucy Nalvathanchel, one of our reporters here, saying that her favorite spice mixture is, mixture is garam masala. Now, garam masala is one of those – my understanding of garam masala is that there are – you know, you could go to five different Indian stores and buy five different things that were garam masala, and they'd all be a little bit different. I mean, is, is there isn't some kind of internationally in, unvariable standard for, for what that is? No, there isn't. And, uh, you know, you talk about garam masala or different types of curry. I mean, there's such richness and variety in India, and, and they really go in-depth, and they would have a garam masala for one preparation and then a different one for another one, and every village or every house will be. We're not there yet. <laughs> uh, I think we, we have more of a standard here. I don't make a garam masala. Uh, you know, I make I do have a few blends that are Indian-inspired, but um, I don't want you to think of it as an Indian spice. 
I want you to be able to make your Caesar salad, to exaggerate a little bit, with what could be a garam masala. Hmm. I like that idea. All right, so you you got to tell us about spice therapy. This that's this is a whole different area. Most of us <laughs> are using spices, as you say, to pep up our, our Caesar salad a little bit, or to to make uh, the 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 soup on the stove uh, have a little bit more flavor to it. Spice therapy, I assume, is a, is a very different animal. Yeah, it is. It, it's a title that I got um, a year ago. So, in, in terms of being a spice therapist, it's it consists of many things. I I firmly believe that cooking. Uh, itself is a therapeutic act, a therapeutical act. You know, you you are focused. You're in a, in a calm environment if you're a calm person, and and you're nourishing yourself and your loved ones. You know, so it's it's one way of dealing with a lot of anxiety and anger and hunger, which is a source of anxiety. So I think that's one element to it. The other element I think goes back to your childhood or certain memories in your life uh, that often enough I, t- I are tied to scent. You know, scent uh, is is often enough ignored. Our brains record everything that we smell throughout our lives. And often enough, uh, it happens when you're having a negative experience. And what we see uh, in many people uh, that come to see us and saying, I hate this or cinnamon or I hate clove or I hate that. And often enough, it's because they had a bad memory in the past with it. And, and we try to help them to overcome this. And, and maybe starting to like these things used in the right way. So I think this, when we talk about therapy, it's it's uh, dealing with that. It's also with um, a sort of um, uh, a mechanical act of using, you, you know, your hands and your senses. So it helps overcome a lot of challenges. So if I were to come to you and say, Lior, I don't know, it's, uh, you know, mid to late January, I've got seasonal affective disorder, there's no light in the sky, uh, I'm depressed, I'm, uh, I'm 60 years old, I'm this, I'm that. So would you put together some kind of, would you ask me a series of questions and put together some kind Absolutely. of spice? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think I would, you know, I'm not a physician and I cannot prescribe anything, but I think I could send you home with a list of groceries mm-hmm. and uh, have you go to your kitchen or find somebody who would cook for you and, and prepare a meal or a dish. I'm, I'm pretty sure the results are going to be good. Um, uh, I, if I can give you a very quick example of a sure. couple, I don't do couple therapies. I don't have a couch in my store, but uh, who came to the store and were arguing pretty badly about the fact that his food is really salty and unedible. And I don't know where I got the idea, but I asked him to show me his hands. Mm -hmm. And he was a pretty big guy with pretty big fingers. And I asked, can you tell me what salt you're using? And he said, yeah, I use a very fine uh, sea salt. And I said, here is what we're going to do. You're going to go home and on your way, you're going to grab at the store some coarse sea salt Mm -hmm. and go home and call me in a few days and um, next thing you know, they did call me, and um, she was very happy because his food became less salty. He was happy because she was less unhappy. Uh, the matter of a fact that because he had such big fingers, he was using too much salt, and by using fine salt, he was grabbing just too much, and by switching to coarse salt. Uh, I don't know if I saved their uh, marriage <laughs> life, but at least food tastes better at their home. You sound you're like you're the Sherlock of spice. That was a pretty good, uh, pretty good detuc- yeah. d- detective work there. All right, um, let me just uh, grab a call or two here for you. Uh, we've got uh, I may be saying this wrong. Jawahar of New Britain, uh, welcome hey. to the show. Colin, you did pretty good saying my name. All right, uh, good. Hey, uh, I'm an Indian chef. I did cook with Martha Stewart. 
I cooked in a NBC on Sunday. I do a lot of spices. They call me Spice Jack. And so do you have some uh, words for us about garam masala then? Yes. Hey, a lot of people, garam, they think garam masala flares with the curry. It's totally two different things. And, and so how does somebody pick out a good garam masala? You have kind of roast them in your own house. You pick up star hennes, fennel, fenugreek seeds, cumin seeds, black pepper, cardamom, coriander, leaves. You saute all this and put them in a blender. You mix. Depends oh, that... on if you're marinating fish, you do a different garam masala. <laughs> if you're marinating a white meat, it's a different garam masala. If you do a red meat, different garam masala. See, now, I, Lior, I have to say, I think most people aren't going to do that. I mean, I think it's a relatively small subset of the American cooking population, even, that's going to sit there with a, with a grinder or uh, a tiny blender and blend their own garam masala. On the other end of the spectrum is picking up some McCormick's curry powder or something like that uh, that's going to you know, taste like nothing, basically. And so, really, it seems to me the the, the, the territory you're operating in, Lior, is the, the middle ground between those two options yeah i think you know I, an, an ideal world or perfect world would be such as you know everybody would just as the the caller just described you'd have all these great ingredients and you would toast and grind them and prepare them most people won't because they don't have the time or the knowledge um and the patience to do it this is where the blends intervene and there are many great blenders out there in the market larger scale smaller scale uh I think the the important thing is just to get people excited about using spices because, first of all and foremost, they bring flavor to your food, uh, and they're fun. And through that, you learn about different cultures and different ethnicities, not to mention the, the health benefits uh, of them. So I think blends are a good way to start because, you know, um, you save a lot of time and trouble. Later on, if you choose to make your own blends, then absolutely. All right, we're going to grab a quick break here uh, when we come back. Or do, or do we have time to grab Peter? I can't see. Well, maybe if we have time on the other side, we'll grab Peter. Uh, Lior is going to stay with us. We're going to add Deborah Blum. We're going to talk nutmeg, the, the Connecticut spice. He who controls the spice controls the universe. I thought spice came from the excrement of sandworms and could be used to facilitate interstellar travel by folding space. Why has this not come up? You people are living in a fantasy world. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Kate McAuliffe, Katie Pikus, and Katie Vandelay. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Baby Spice. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff, Actually, maybe you don't want to see what they do with spices. Visit our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, the eternal human fascination with fire. And now, back to Colin. All right, we are back, um, and we're talking about spices. We've been talking about spices for this show. Uh, Lior Lev Sarkars is with us. He's the chef, spice blender, and owner of La Boite. 
uh, a biscuit and spice shop in uh, New York City. He's also a spice therapist. I want to go there right now and get some spice therapy. I think I do need it. Uh, and for exactly the reasons I said, too, seasonal affective disorder. Uh, joining us also is Deborah Blum. Uh, most people know that uh, Connecticut is known as the nutmeg spice state, although there are competing ideas about where that name came from, and none of them are terribly flattering to the early uh, people of Connecticut or the, the the peddlers who would go through here. But we also want to know a little bit about the, the, the history and nature of nutmeg itself. People around Connecticut throw that word around. I'm not really sure uh, people know very much about it. But Deborah does, and so does Lior, for that matter. So uh, we're going to uh, draw on both of their understandings. But um, Deborah Blum, uh, tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, nutmeg. This is an unusually Myst- I mean, we've been talking for almost an hour now about how mysterious and exotic and Proustian and compelling spices are. But even within the continuum of that, nutmeg seems to be um, a, a, a spice with unusually interesting latent properties. Yes, that's exactly right. I um, My real interest is in things that poison us and... So I was in conversation with a a bunch of toxicologists, and they started talking about nutmeg at one of the national toxicology meetings. So naturally, I had to pursue what was going on with this. Nutmeg's an old spice, right? It's been imported to Europe since really the 1100s, and it uh, derives mostly from a tree that's native to Indonesia, uh, which has the Latin name Maristica fragrans. And uh, it's now grown elsewhere, so there's a lot more of it circulating around. But when it was first discovered and imported, it it was very rare and and extremely valuable. People would rank it up there in value, you know, in sort of the top five lists that included things like gold and diamonds. Um, But it started getting, as well as for its wonderful flavor, I, I love especially the holiday flavors of nutmeg, but nutmeg in cooking, uh, it started almost immediately having a very interesting reputation for a spice could, that could do more than just season your food. And so as you go back, you see people talking, even in the Middle Ages, about its toxic effects. Um, it was used uh, by women to try to induce abortion. It was used to sort of uh, in both medical and toxic uh, kinds of ways, and, and that kind of mystique about it sort of floated through really right into 19th and 20th century Europe, where you start starting to see very uh, regular reports of the use of nutmeg as a hallucinogen, largely in prisons, and then as partly thanks to the internet, kind of spiraling out beyond that. Don't try this at home, by the way. Do not try to use a nutmeg to get high. First of all, I mean, it really is, as Deborah Bloom is saying, her big interest is in poisons, and nutmeg is, it's at some level, toxic. Um, so, you know, I mean, use it sparingly. I'm, I want to go back to its medicinal properties. So, Deborah, my sense is that um, nutmeg in, in the Middle Ages, it was almost like an early version of chemotherapy, that it was such an incredibly strong thing that the Europeans thought, well, maybe it could fight the Black Plague or something. That's exactly right. It was tried as a plague remedy. It was tried to ward off other infectious diseases. You know, it had a strong smell, a both appealing and very strong taste. And as you notch up the dose, and this is what makes it so interesting today as well, as you go from, you know, what we think of as the sprinkle on eggnog, say, during the holidays, 
to a teaspoon, a tablespoon, several tablespoons, you feel it, and you feel it fairly quickly. And so I think one of the things that to me makes it so interesting is that there's a really a limited number of chemical compounds that cross the blood-brain barrier. You know, we're fortunate, right? We don't want everything we right. swallow crossing the blood-brain barrier. But nutmeg is one of the spices that we can measure doing that, and we can measure its neurotrophic effects. So I think you see very early on people saying, this is, has a certain unique power, and it makes me feel different. And that plays out to that kind of wonderful, you know, sometimes dark, sometimes mystical mythology that surrounds it. It's a fascinating spice. Um, Lior, how much of this is resonating with you? I mean, obviously, as, as a chef, you're going to be using a nutmeg, and you probably wish people used it uh, for something other than eggnog at Christmas time or whatever it is that people use it for. Uh, but how about all this other stuff? Have you had rich and mystical experiences with, must, with, with nutmeg? Uh, no. I think for the most part, I just value it for the great um, properties and qualities it has in cooking and and my goal, as you said, is to get people to use it all year round, you know, not just around the holiday season. Um, um, and also use different parts of the nutmeg. We talk about nutmeg, uh, for the most part, uh, ignoring completely the mace, which is the outer or second layer underneath the, the hard shell of the nutmeg, which has even uh, citrus notes to it and is much more delicate and beautiful, yet ignored uh, in many ways. And mace also can be notched up to that hallucinogenic level. Both mace and nutmeg contain a couple of compounds. I mean, you couldn't do this at home, right? But these are compounds that chemists have linked to the uh, as sort of building blocks in some of the more famous street drugs, such as ecstasy, uh, which is part of the modern, totally mistaken mythology that surrounds nutmeg, right? Again, you see the nutmeg and mace floating through the Poison Control Center reports in part because people don't understand how this works. I had no idea. Um, Lior, just uh, also just so we don't lose sight of, uh, of nutmeg's normal use, um, although we, we love these exotic and toxic properties. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, as you say, I think Americans use it at the holidays. But in a lot of cuisine, I, 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 like the French have something called quatre, quatre épices, right? Uh, four, mm-hmm. four spice, and that's, that's one of the four, spice, uh, uh, four spices in that blend. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, nutmeg, there's a couple of things that are um, a bit problematic. For the most part, we buy it here in the United States already ground because it's easier to grind it at the source. I only buy whole nutmeg because I don't know what's ground into my nutmeg. I'd like to see or grind it myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you do have whole nutmeg, you need to grade it, which adds another layer of activity in your kitchen. And a few people jump ship right there. But I think anywhere from your oatmeal for breakfast or your uh, fried eggs later on in your coffee or your tea um, to salad dressings to nearly everything, not to mention if you're going to get a cocktail later on in the evening and your bartender grates some on your cocktail, uh, it has a great effect. So there's really no place uh, where nutmeg could not be integrated. Um, I should say that uh, you're not alone. Uh, Gordon tweets to us, I love my West German-made nutmeg grinder. So at least one of our listeners is that. Uh, and then Kevin tweets, I've loved Middle, Middle Eastern food for a very long time. I just recently discovered how to make barat. And the secret ingredient mm-hmm. is sumac powder, which is also sounds like something that 
ordinarily. I mean, <laughs> sumac to me sounds very toxic, but I guess that's a, another spice you can use. So, um, Deborah, one uh, one thing that I hadn't even quite understood about nutmeg, even though I live in the nutmeg state, is it actually comes from an evergreen tree. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a uh, an ever a quite beautiful evergreen tree if you go and look at pictures of it online, right? And fairly sturdy because. As I said, it used to be grown on this one island in the sort of chain of islands of Indonesia, but we're now growing it in in other places. I think there's some places in the Caribbean as well, which tells you that it's a sort of move-tolerant kind of tree. And, and, you know, you said that it it at one point rose to the level of really a luxury item and an Mm -hmm. incredibly expensive thing. And one of the theories about why Connecticut's called the nutmeg state, I think, is because Connecticut peddlers, itinerant Connecticut peddlers, were selling other things as nutmeg that, you know, in fact, our, our, our state... Uh, nickname has to do with our general untrustworthiness. But this is something that went on, right? A lot of things would be passed off as nutmeg? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, and uh, so I'm, work- I'm looking at a book, on, uh, doing a book on early history of food safety and uh, adulteration in the 19th century. And there's a fabulous report, at least to me, uh, from about... Um, Man, it's like the late 1880s, 1887, in which the U.S. government took a look at spices. And it's so amazing to read this in the pre-regulation age. I mean, people were so inventive in faking spices. They, uh, there's these gourds, you know, people would sell molds to fake coffee beans even, right? So that you would be grinding uh, dirt and sawdust in your cup. Well, that's why we recommend that everybody buy all of their spices from La Boite. I'm actually going on their website right you after should, the show. I mean, it doesn't hurt to know your source. Ground yeah. spices, I mean, a, a, a nutmeg, obviously, if you're buying the actual nutmeg and it tastes so wonderful when you grind it yourself, um, is, is not an easily fake thing. Exactly. But I've seen more recent reports, you know, looking at, well, what's the source of this ground spice? Actually, I hear music welling up, Deborah, that tells me that I have to go. But thank you so much to you, Deborah Bloom, uh, working on the Poisoner's Handbook. Or no, she's already done the Poisoner's Handbook. She's got another poison book coming out. Uh, and Lior Lev Sirkars from La Boite. <laughs> It's a good show, right? Yeah. I never really thought about spices. Is the ground moving? What is that? Oh my god, Greg, it's a sandworm. It's definitely a sandworm. Oh, no, that's just a garbage truck. <laughs>